The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Christmas markets are a little bit of the wonderful life in twinkling lights with crackling wood fires and the smell of roasting chestnuts. We step into Christmas on The Urbanist as we explore how cities get their bells jingling for the festive time of year. From a roundup of the best markets in the German-speaking world to a unique Canadian mascot that signals the holiday season. And a look at both London and Helsinki and how they light up for the Christmas period. That's ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. One of the most visible ways that our cities change during the festive season is the addition of the Christmas market to public squares and thoroughfares. And if you're a monocle regular, you'll know how much we love a good market. Some of the toughest to beat at this game are those in the German-speaking world, who excel when it comes to creating the perfect festive pop-up. We asked Monocle's Jessica Bridger to send us an ode to the Christmas market and to explain what a good one can mean for a city's residents. By late November, most of the Northern Hemisphere is cold, dark and a bit unforgiving. City streets from Boston to Berlin are grey and even the most committed city lovers sometimes question their fascination with urban areas. This is the backdrop to the magical transformation that Christmas markets bring to many European cities. We rarely think of cities as magical, but the holiday season brings a lot of magic to urban places. The genius lies in the truth that Christmas markets reveal. That truth is, we all hunger for urban places that are simple, bring people together, offer small pleasures and easy access. Places that feel transformed promise, in turn, our own transformation. We will be more loving, have more fun, see more friends, take more time to enjoy life. We promise ourselves all of this. And we think, had we forgotten how happy a glass of mulled wine makes us? I've lived in the German-speaking world for 15 years. And every year, as Christmas nears, public squares, large and small, are set up for the pageant of lights, wooden sheds, and outdoor fires. Everything gets a little more gemütlich. From Berlin to Munich, Zurich to Baden, markets reflect the cities they're in. 
The markets of Berlin range from the downscale kitsch of Alexanderplatz, with tacky industrial souvenirs and syrupy glue vine, to the splendor of Gendarmenmarkt, grand with pointed top tents and a massive Christbaum. But like anything in Berlin, one must also seek out the quieter places, hidden and ready to discover. My favorite is the small market, one street long, on Sophienstrasse in Mitte. German-made wooden crafts, quality food and drink, all tucked into a cozy side street. Munich is altogether an exercise in Christmas cheer, easy in the pretty southern German city. The entire center dresses for the season, twinkling lights, evergreens, and ribbon. It is not enough in Munich to simply offer the golden triumvirate of glue vine, market stalls, and fairy lights. Each market has a distinct offer. There's the wild bazaar of circus tents at Olympia Park, or the Christmas festival, which happens on Theresienwiese, the location of Oktoberfest, and the Middle Ages costume Mittelaltlicher Weihnachtsmarkt. Munich aims to please. Christmas markets in Switzerland tend to be a little bit more well-organized and even well-rounded, and avoid the kitsch almost entirely. One of the best is in the center of Zurich, next to the opera house and the lake. Food goes beyond the usual bratwurst and reflects international Zurich, from Afghan bolani flatbread to Tibetan momo dumplings. There's excellent wine, and you can stop to sip in many covered places complete with couches. In fact, even in the rain, the market is a wonder, a refuge complete with seasonal cheer. Life pulls at us. The world sometimes weighs heavy. We walk city streets wondering about our lives, worrying our own worries. We hear news, good and bad, global and personal. We make reservations, we plan trips, we see friends, family, co-workers. Days to weeks to months. Yet we are all looking for those special things, the spectacular, the instances where our answer to life is a heartfelt yes, an embrace, a mug of hot wine, as a Shanghai colleague calls it. The best cities answer to this, not all the time, but at least sometimes. Christmas markets are a little bit of the wonderful life in twinkling lights with crackling wood fires and the smell of roasting chestnuts. For Monocle in Zurich, I'm Jessica Bridger. Thanks, Jessica. And I'm joined now by Monocle's Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsov, who has a case to make for those who reside in Santa's homeland of Finland. Petri, thank you for joining me. What is it about the way the cityscape of Helsinki changes around this time of year you think sets it apart from other centres? Well, Andrew, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, the climate. You know, Helsinki being so far up north compared to most European, indeed most world capitals, you know, it is such a dark time of year. We only get a few hours of sunshine and... That all changes. Well, the sunshine doesn't change, but the lighting changes during the Christmas time. We just light up our streets. Really, we go all in on that and try to sort of bring joy to people's lives by street lights. And I think there's something about, you know, the people's mentality as well in Helsinki and in Finland during the winter. You know, we're a little bit down because of the lack of the light. And then when Christmas time arrives, it all changes. It's like this race in November when people start thinking, hey, you know, are we allowed to put up Christmas lights already and start sort of doing the Christmas decorations. So it is really a mental health boost as well for the Finns. 
And tell me about the lights. So is this the kinds of lights that you'd see in other cities or is it just that there's more of them? I think they're relatively similar to what we see in other cities. But yeah, there's more of them, at least when you sort of compare the sizes of cities. So Helsinki is not that big of a city, a half a million people only, but most of the main streets in downtown are filled with these lights. And then I think it's a big ceremony, actually, when the street lights in the beginning of December, when they're switched on. So Santa Claus travels to Helsinki from his home in, in Lapland, and there's this sort of a parade with like music and dancing and light by light, the lights are switched on and families with kids and all kinds of families actually from Helsinki just thousands of them take to the streets to follow this uh, switching on of the lights and tell me have you had the first drops of snow this year how cold is it this year Oh, we have right now a wonderful Christmas. So it's about minus five now. So for Finns, this is not too cold. <laughs> we can drop to minus 20. That's when we start calling it cold. But, you know, it's still cold enough for the snow to stay on the ground. We have about half a meter of snow right now. So, for example, you know, if you have parked your car street side, you really have to grab a shovel and dig it out. So it's really wonderful and wintry right at the moment. And that really adds to the Christmas atmosphere. I was going to say, because I've been in Helsinki during the winter and there's something about the silencing effect of the snow that kind of traps any noise and also the way that the light reflects off of the snow, that when you're there at nighttime especially, it just feels so magical. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, those Christmases we have had without snow, the mood completely changes because, you know, when it's just miserable and sort of grey and, and rainy, that also sucks some of the lights off. So, you know, it just makes everything seem sort of drab and grey. And tell me, I know you have a tradition, like many northern cities, of Christmas markets. Are they an occasion for festive food? What kind of traditional kind of Finnish treats would we find there? The Christmas market in Helsinki is a relatively new thing. I think they've done it for the past 10 years or so, and they wanted to do it differently. So it's not like the traditional Christmas markets that you would find in sort of middle Europa. It's more design focused and the food as well. It's less traditional. It's more sort of a, you know, we have some of the best restaurants in Helsinki. We have, you know, Michelin star restaurants at the Christmas market doing their takes on traditional treats but you know you can still find your christmas pastries with some plum in them you can find the finnish version of uh, glühwein which is glöggi we put raisins and almonds in it but it doesn't have as much alcohol as glühwein does and then we have just your you know cinnamon buns and treats like that and if you want to go for something savory then you have the karelian pies which are finnish specialty you won't find them anywhere else and tell me any traditions that we should know about at this time of year one thing about Helsinki also, which is, I think, quite unique, this is something that we have covered on Monocle before, it's the Stockman's Christmas window. And they've been doing that. Stockman is the main department store of Helsinki, a very historic one, one of the oldest ones in, in Europe. And they, they've they been doing it since 1949, this sort of a Christmas window installation. And it, it tells a whole narrative arc in it. And it's a must for all the kids. I mean, people from other cities in Finland travel to see this uh, Christmas window as well. So I think that's one thing very unique. And I want to mention something quite funny about the way Finns celebrate Christmas. It's our very particular take on Christmas carols. And again, something that I remember we have discussed before. So Finnish Christmas carols, they're not particularly happy. They're more sort of a just put you in a somber mood. Finns don't see them as sad. But I think if you translate the lyrics and if you just play the melody, I think most non-Finns would <laughs> think that they're a little bit too on the sadder side. And just before I let you go, just tell me a very personal thing. 
what undergarments do you wear at this time of year to keep all of you warm, as it were? <laughs> How many well, layers? How many layers are we talking? We're talking two layers, undergarments. Normal ones, just boxers, briefs, and then okay. you have to wear long johns, otherwise not doable. Okay, good. Well, we'll be thinking of you and your, your family. Have a great Christmas from all of us here at The Urbanist. Next, we take a closer look at one of Canada's most recognisable symbols of winter, the mascot of Quebec City's annual winter festival, a jolly, cheerful figure of a snowman created in 1954. Monocle's correspondent in Canada, Thomas Lewis, introduces us to the city's beloved figurehead, Bonhomme. You don't have to rummage too deeply among the ephemera of Quebec City's antique shops and trinket stores to encounter one of the city's most famous emblems. Bonhomme, the ever-smiling snowman, one arm raised in a wave, who sports his famous floppy red bobble hat year-round. In fact, even outside the winter months, he's one of the city's most beloved symbols. Bonhomme is hard to miss. There's even a life-size statue of him at the arrivals concourse at Quebec City's International Airport. Officially, Bonhomme is the mascot of Quebec City's annual winter carnival, but he's become arguably over the decades a symbol of the city more broadly, a cheerful, welcoming figure, forever smiling, even in the depths of Quebec's famously arduous winters. The mascot was created in the early 1950s when the three founders of the city's Winter Carnival worked to drum up interest in the three-week Winter Festival. A mascot, it was deemed, would do the job. A jovial emblem of some kind to draw people out of their homes and into the city during the weeks of winter at the beginning of the year. Bonhomme was created in 1954 and made his debut in public in living, breathing form, thanks to the person wearing the official Bonhomme costume that year, on the 9th of January 1955. So popular did the mascot become that the city's mayor at the time presented him with the great honour of the keys to the city, the first time the honour had been granted to anyone, let alone a person nestled inside a snowman costume. That's a warm tradition that continues to this day, when Bonhomme is presented with the keys to the city at the beginning of the carnival to kick off the festivities. But a greater honour is who gets to don the official Bonhomme costume each year during the carnival. For years it was the carnival's committee who decided on the person inside this most storied of Quebecois costumes. Whoever it was, it was someone deemed to have contributed in a meaningful way to the city's French-speaking community. Since 2023, however, residents in the city have had a say on who gets to don the famous outfit, confirming, perhaps, Bonhomme's status all along, if you'll pardon the pun, as a snowman of the people. This coming year's festival begins on the 25th of January and will feature its regular popular fixtures, a vast ice palace, snow sculptures, the annual winter parade and performances by some of Quebec's best-loved acts, all watched over, of course, by the ubiquitous presence of Bonhomme himself. But most important of all, perhaps, is that the 2024 edition of the festival is a particularly big year for Bonhomme. It's his 70th birthday, a milestone that Bonhomme, unlike the rest of us mere mortals, will have the luxury of celebrating among the thousands of carnival goers looking not a day older and looking no less cheery at the prospect of wintry days ahead than he did on the day he was born. For Monocle, I'm Thomas Lewis.
Before we go today, we wanted to check in on one of London's brightest features of the festive calendar, the annual Regent Street Christmas light installation. Joining me today is Simon Harding-Roots, the Managing Director for the Crown Estate's London portfolio, which encompasses 10 million square feet of property in the UK capital. They're also behind the programming for the lighting spectacular that can be found every year on Regent Street. Simon, thank you for being here. Can you explain a bit about the reason behind this annual feature? It seems now that for people in London, these displays are sort of fundamental to the Christmas season. Yeah, they are fundamental. I mean, when it boils down to it, they are a fundamental part of creating great place. And placemaking is terribly overused in sort of our industry by a lot of people. But creating great places, I think people do get that. And it's about attracting people back into London. I mean, our footfall figures overall in London aren't where they should be. They're not quite as high as they were pre-pandemic, although people are coming and spending and, and enjoying London. But it's about, beyond that, constantly evolving space to be attractive and different and vibrant and fun and I mean fun that's the ultimate part of the Christmas lights and we had our switch on for our lights they were counted down on the Piccadilly lights so those famous lights by Piccadilly Circus with brightly coloured pigeons which is our marketing campaign this year and switched on the lights and people were just gazing up and taking their selfies and it just drew the crowds in and then I, I actually took the opportunity to then wander up through Regent Street and if you go up through Regent Street and you take some of the back streets we've put new lights there this year just to animate some of those side streets so it's not all about the main big lights just to create some more intensity and again that fun and then into Carnaby Street where Shaftesbury have put their lights which are bright and coloured and very Carnaby And that's what I love about London at this time of year. Everyone's switching on those festive lights and they all have their distinct personality, but you can just walk your way through all of them. It's a great draw for people. And you said before we came on air that actually the lights haven't changed in recent years. You're putting up existing lights, so it's reasonably sustainable at all the things that you're doing. What do you do with them when they're not up? They just go in storage in a warehouse, do they? They do, they do. But I think it is important to keep it fresh. And obviously you can't do that every year. It's a huge investment. But we're now adding lighting and and some animation on some of our side streets like Hedden Street or Glasshouse Street, which go into Soho or into the Mayfair side of the street, which mainly runs north-south. And it's just about keeping that fresh. And I can't reveal too much today, but we are in the process of refreshing the main lights as well, which will be very exciting, hopefully, for next year. As you said, there's something, I think, magical. And also the timing of it, that they get switched on as the city is feeling dark and wintry. But are you surprised at the enduring appeal of coming up to town, as it were, for many people still, to see the Christmas lights? I'm not, to be honest. I think I remember it as a child myself. And what's lovely about it is that it still has that pull. And it's a global attraction as well as a very local one. I love that. There's a local ownership and relevance for people who live in London that they want to see the lights. But equally well, people, as you say, travel from far and wide. The Crown Estate, we were actually the first people to introduce Christmas lights, which is sort of a wonderful legacy. In 1954, after the war, London was pretty grey and dreary, and it was a conscious effort by the council at that time to make it a bit more fun and attractive. And they used bits of old glass. It was a very sustainable system, which they hung in the air, and they were lit by old aircraft lights from the war, so recycled and put onto sides of buildings. So that was the first phase of Christmas lights back in 1954, and we've kept going pretty much ever since. You talked about placemaking and the use of lighting and all sorts of things to give character and make places appealing. You have another interesting project on the go, which is thinking about some of these neighbourhoods which 
tend to be prime retail, luxury retail, the top of their game in many ways. But you're you're interested to see how you diversify still who comes into those spaces. I think it's really important. And I think a key plank of that is this inclusivity and being welcome genuinely to people to come into London. And it's therefore creating different reasons to come and a reason to feel comfortable there. Parts of the estate today are quite isolated. And to listeners, part of the south of it, which is down on a road called Haymarket, is an island site which is literally a couple of hundred metres away from the beating heart of the West End in Leicester Square. And yet no one crosses over the road. There's a big highway that splits it. So it's just about joining London up better. And this is where the great estates can do that because they have contiguous ownership, so joined up ownership over a lot of space. So 200 acres we have in London enables us to not just deal with a building by building. We can actually engage with Westminster City Council and look at the whole place together and invest in that and invest in London more broadly, which means it can be more joined up. Are there limits, though, to what you can do to diversify who, say, wants to walk around St James's? Because they have very distinctive neighbourhoods and they have strong traditions. Is it always going to be a bit difficult to appeal to maybe a very young generation, for example, to say, OK, this is also a neighbourhood for you? I think, and that's really important because there's strong tradition. I mean, German Street is a wonderfully traditional part of St. James's and no one wants to change that. But there are parts of the portfolio like Hedden Street where David Bowie recorded Ziggy Stardust and the Beatles did their last concert on one of the roofs of one of our buildings there, which no one knows about. And I think that would just be really fun to draw that out and just sort of bring in the difference and the diversity that does exist. And the younger generation, it's about making it relevant for some of the uses that are in those retail units. So, for instance, we've got Gymshark. So Ben Francis wanted to be right in the heart of Regent Street for his single global bricks-and-mortar store for Gymshark, which is primarily, obviously, an online brand. And that is bringing in a completely different demographic of people. You can come for free classes. They have running clubs that go out each day. You don't have to spend any money. And so that's just a really nice example of making sure that the uses bring in different types of people and there's different things for different people. And not also just about shopping. The big part about our investment in Regent Street, we want to enhance the actual physical presence and environment of Regent Street. We're working in partnership with Westminster on that to make it greener and just make it a much nicer environment to walk in. So we called it the Park to Park. So from Regent's Park in the north down to St James's Park in the south. That was originally a processional route 200 years ago. And just to bring that thought back that you can come and just enjoy a nice promenade up the street rather than just have to go into a shop and and leave. And there's a lot of planting that's happened over the recent years and the broadening of pavements. They're still thoroughfares, though. Where do you, you stand on that? Because I'm a little bit torn sometimes in this, because I, I think the, seeing the buses go down there, it's part of the London charm as well. But it's such a push in many cities now to be fully pedestrianised and to take out traffic. How do you feel about that debate? Because they, they had it on Oxford Street and it didn't go anywhere. Where are you at with that discussion? It's a 27-metre-wide road. That's not very wide. It's about a third or a quarter of the size of the Champs-Élysées, for instance. But it's a fundamental north-south link in London for cars and taxis and buses and cyclists. So that needs to be worked with. But equally well, we want it to be more pedestrian-friendly and less polluted and more inviting. So it's working with all of that to come up with the right solution. So we've put in place during the pandemic 
temporary enhancements, temporary widening that was driven by the pandemic and wanting to create a safer environment for people. That's landed really well. So as I mentioned, we're in direct partnership now with the City Council to bring in permanent enhancement works, which is sort of trees in the ground and really bringing nature and biodiversity. And we're working with the London Zoo in terms of genuine biodiversity in an urban setting with both of the Royal Parks who will anchor it at each end. And it's creating a nicer environment, but it's also got to function. We are in the centre of a global city and it has requirements that need to be there. So the buses, as you say, is a good example. People are coming up to town for Christmas shopping and things that... There are many places in London, including Oxford Street, which still have not kind of worked out fully how they're going to get back on their feet. Whereas Regent Street seems to have always been much more successful at navigating the ups and downs and the twists in the, in the retail environment. You don't seem to have many empty stores. Are you feeling confident about the world of physical retail and how that will function in future years? Yes, we are feeling confident about that. Again, it comes back to this agility point, this evolution point. I mean, if you think back sort of 10 years ago, the units were actually very different. We were dominated by big box, largely American brands like J. Crew or Ralph Lauren that wanted big showcase stores where all of their merchandise was on display. Now, of course, it's very different. It's experiential, the word's used a lot. But genuinely, if you again, if you look at Gymshark or Unrunning, it's about going in and understanding the, what the brand stands for and getting involved and then probably buying something or even going home and buying it online. But it's a very different function. So it's how do you keep evolving that? And what we've done, therefore, is reduce the size of some of those big boxes. They've moved on, industry's moved on because a lot of people have gone online. You don't need to have all your merchandise on the shelves. You can see it online. And I think where... We all have to evolve in the West End for the benefit of the broader city. And Oxford Street's just been struck by a sort of structural shift, largely by the big department store. So the changes in, in retail around that, that's all being reworked now. And it is evolving and it will be great. And I suppose Regent Street hasn't had that with the department stores so much, but we've got to continue evolving. And that's what the vision is that I reference. It's about continually adjusting and getting the right people. And that, actually that goes for workspace as well, for offices, where people love to claim that the office is dead. And I mean, we're just not seeing that, but it's got to be different. It's got to evolve. I do think that's fascinating that I speak to many people who are developers or or landlords, and actually where they're snapping up office space now is around Oxford Street, because they see that people want to go out at the end of the day and they want to have something to do at lunchtime. And in fact, maybe they're more challenged on finding somebody who wants to take the space that they have out in Shoreditch, because it's easier to keep people in an office environment or entice them back or, or make them feel welcome in a place where there is life and activity. I think that's right. And I think people, you know, have been at home a lot. You know, we were at home for a long time and you, human nature is you just wanted to be back in and socialising. But you can't just rely on the old office layout with rows and rows of desks, which is quite solar. So it's also evolving the space. People aren't necessarily coming in five days a week. So how do companies adjust to that and have enough flexibility where they can accommodate busier days, midweek and quieter days. So we're, with the amount of space and product we've got, that's we're working really closely with our customers on that to accommodate them for that. Simon Harding-Roots, thank you so much for joining me on The Urbanist. And that's all for this festive episode of The Urbanist. We know that you can't pick your family, but you can pick your podcasts. And we appreciate you choosing to spend Christmas with us. The Urbanist is produced by Carlo Trebello and David Stevens. David also edits the show. And to play you out this week, here's Wolfpack with Christmas in LA. Thank you for listening, city lovers.
Yeah.